everybody hear me? Uh, I did want to take a, a moment before I start to especially uh, express my gratitude to Dr. Snyder for inviting me to give this lecture. Uh, Dr. Snyder, I just want you to know when you asked me to give it, my first reaction was to think, well, why in the heck is he asking me? Well, there are so many others who would be better qualified to speak to our seniors. But, Dr. Snyder, I do want to tell you one of the great things about you as my boss and friend is that you believe in me, I think, more than I believe in myself. And that's been a lot to me. So thank you, Dr. Snyder, for entrusting me with this task of addressing our beloved seniors during their last year at Christendom. But I should also tell you my second reaction when I received your email invitation was to hit the delete button <laughs> and to proceed as if I had never seen it. For you may not know this, but I've been here about 20 years, and this is indeed my first public lecture at Christendom. So I'm going to ask for your patience and leniency, especially from your seniors. So now let me begin by saying the following. I am sure that most of you are aware that over the last 40 or 50 years, there has been almost an unlimited number of books, manuals, seminars, and websites, all devoted to the single task of teaching us how to be successful at something in life. So this past summer, I googled the phrase, how to be successful at. And as you could probably guess, I became the happier recipient of a veritable smorgasbord of opportunities for success. When looking at the list, I felt a little bit like the ass of Viridian, that donkey who could not choose between a stack of hay on his right nor a pail of water on his left, since both appeared equally desirable. The poor donkey, as you know, died from both hunger and thirst. And so I, like a stout old donkey, felt a little paralyzed by the enticements of the virtual reality of success, wanting on the one side to have it all, to have every form of success, but knowing that on the other side I would, I would have to limit my choices. I knew I had to choose for I'm an American, and all Americans have to be successful at something. But I did want it all, and so like the uh, Britians ass, I felt the prospect of being successful at nothing. Yet, as with many other things in my life, I suspected that my Aristotelianism could provide a way out of my predicament. For the thought came to me, a thought I believe I got from reading Aristotle, that I could actually be successful at everything if I could find a, a way to be successful at one thing, that thing being wisdom. The Aristotelian wise man, in other words, supposedly gets it all. His thought, I mean, his success is thought to be all-inclusive. If this is so, then in being wise, I will at the same time be successful at everything I do. So inspired by this thought, I added the word wisdom to my search, hoping and even expecting to receive a plethora of websites providing me with whatever methods are needed to be successful at pursuing wisdom. Now, I can hardly remember a time when the Internet has ever let me down. <laughs> it is like the being of Parmenides. It never disappoints, for it is completely full. But not on this occasion. The is-not was found. There, there was a hole, a gaping absence within the dense fabric of the Internet. I found not a single website devoted to my interest. Yes, a few included language about pursuing 
of, uh, about pursuing wisdom, but no website talked about the kind of wisdom that I was interested in, namely the kind of wisdom that Aristotle and St. Thomas referred to as the wisdom of the philosopher. Why this is, why I found nothing, can of course be explained in part by the law of supply and demand, which rules our free market economy. Where there is no demand, there will be no supply. I suspect there is simply no niche within the free market for manuals about how to achieve wisdom. Do I, but I do believe there is a more fundamental reason for this occurrence, and it is that our age would have a difficult time submitting itself to the notion of restituting wisdom as the model of success, since it is so thoroughly, so thoroughly relativistic and skeptical. No longer does wisdom denote, as it used to, something objective, something that transcends both time and place. Like the words true and good, it now connotes the exact opposite, namely something relative, something pertaining purely to the liberty of the private individual. So just as my truth does not have to be your truth and my good, your good, so my wisdom does not have to be your wisdom. Thus it would seem impossible to write a single manual about wisdom simply because simply because there are potentially so many wisdoms as there are people. And to compose such a manual and then market it as the true way to wisdom would, I believe, be viewed by a great number of people as downright impolite and even perhaps a little immoral, for it violate the great principle that governs all of our social relations today, namely the principle of tolerance. Just as I am expected to keep my morality to, to myself, so I am expected to keep my wisdom to myself. To insist otherwise would be tantamount to bigotry. And yet, if I understand the mission of Christendom College correctly, and if I am right about what we view our common endeavor to be here, then I guess we are all to some extent guilty of bigotry. For are we not convinced that wisdom as understood by the pre-modern Western mind is a good common to all, and is, or at least should be, the final goal of everything we do? Do we not regard it as the raison d'etre? I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. I do not have a gift for foreign languages. But as the raison d'etre, I could not resist putting that in there. For a liberal arts college like Christendom, and even more the raison d'etre for every single person who has ever lived or ever will live. And so do we not believe in a common road to wisdom, a path, a single method for attaining wisdom? So this is my purpose tonight, to say a few things about this method for becoming wise. We often talk about it. We often talk about wisdom. I know we do, at least in the philosophy department. But I'm not sure we say enough about what you need to do or to be to be, success, to be successful at wisdom. So my desire tonight is to answer one principal question about wisdom. Namely, what is it you must do in order to become wise? What are those things necessary to the pursuit of wisdom? Now, in formulating my thoughts, I have taken my cue from some of the websites I looked at about achieving success in such things as business and sports. I felt that what experts had to say about worldly success would apply to some extent to the issue of wisdom. What I discovered was a general agreement among experts that at least three main things are required for success. The first is that there are things you have to know about the activity you want to be successful at. So a basketball player who does not know the rules of basketball or does not know the difference between a shooting guard and a point guard will more than likely fail at basketball. 
And so I propose the same is true about wisdom. There are things you have to know in order to be wise. If you do not know there is a God, you will not be wise. There is no such thing as a wise atheist. Or if you deny the existence of the immortal soul, you will fail with wisdom. There is no such thing as a wise materialist. But I will not focus my thoughts tonight on this particular point. Nor will I examine the second thing proposed as necessary for success. To be successful at basketball requires not only knowledge, but also requires a certain set of skills. So a basketball player who moves as if he has two left feet, or who is, un- who is unable to dribble to his left, more than likely will have little success at basketball. And so I propose the same is true about wisdom. Wisdom demands skills. A person who does not know how to read a book well, or a person who does not learn logic, will have a tough time, if not an impossible time, becoming wise. But again, my interest is elsewhere. Uh, Before the Olympics, I heard an interview of Kobe Bryant, and during the interview, he was asked, what is the secret to his incredible success at professional basketball? In his response, it was interesting to me that Kobe said nothing about his basketball IQ and nothing even about his advanced basketball skills. Rather, for him, everything hinged upon the kind of person he was. As he said, what made him different from everyone else he knew was his passion for basketball. The game was his passion. It was his love. It was the living force in his life. It caused him to work harder and longer than everyone else, and it was thus the secret to his success. And what I found absolutely fascinating to me was that Aristotle and St. Thomas, among many others, said almost the the same thing about wisdom. For them, wisdom and character go hand in hand. So like Kobe, I must be passionate. I must be emotional about wisdom. In fact, the requirement is more radical than this. For unlike basketball, which allows me to be at the same time great at basketball, and yet a failure at being a man, wisdom does not allow allow for such compartmentalization. No, wisdom demands integrity. It demands a commitment and a unification of my entire being. An immoral man can still be great at basketball, but he certainly cannot be great at wisdom. This is why any institution like Christendom, which is in the business of wisdom, must necessarily at the same time be in the business of forming the whole person. Christendom and places like it would misunderstand their very mission if they only cared for the intellect and did not care at the same time for the heart, the will, the spirit, and even the body. This is because truth, contrary to the view of the modern world, is not just an affair of the intellect, but is an affair of the whole person. Now, I have entitled my lecture, quote, The Emotional Life of the Philosopher, insofar as it is the philosopher who seeks success in wisdom. And by his emotional life, I mean something general. Namely, I mean his character. So what I wish to identify are those emotions and or dispositions of the will which are proper to the philosopher. And again, I will concentrate only on those that are said to be necessary for wisdom. Now, I should note that I will first speak about about philosophical wisdom, and then after that, I will say a few things about two other forms of wisdom. Now, by philosophical wisdom, I mean simply the highest perfection of human reason, a perfection attained through the knowledge of the ultimate causes of all things. So the wise man is said to to know both the first cause and the final cause of being. He knows the ultimate whence and the first and the final wither of everything that is. 
So what then is the first or motion or disposition of will necessary to the life of the philosopher? For the tradition, it is nothing else than thema. Did I say that correctly? Thema. Or wonder. I love talking about wonder. It is my favorite emotion. I don't know actually if I have experienced the emotion, but it is my favorite emotion. (laughs) Now, I could say many things about it, but I will not torture you with a lot of words, and so I will limit myself to what I think are the most salient points to note about wonder. The first is that for the tradition, wonder enjoys a place of primacy within the philosophical life insofar as it is regarded as the fons et origo of philosophy. It is the origin in that philosophers philosophize precisely out of or from their wonder. Without wonder, philosophy would simply never start. Yet wonder is not merely the temporal origin of philosophy. It is that, but it is more than that. This is because the philosopher philosophizes for as long as he wonders. He cannot put aside his wonder if he wishes to continue to philosophize. No, he depends on it, he needs it, he breathes it, just as we breathe Catholic air around here. Thus, Pieper fittingly describes wonder as, quote, the lasting source, the imminent origin of philosophy. As such, it is absolutely necessary to philosophy and thus to the pursuit of wisdom. A person incapable of wonder is consequently incapable of wisdom. My second point flows from this, and it is in my mind a beautiful point, a point that St. Thomas makes when he demonstrates that man's happiness consists in nothing less than the vision of the divine essence. His argument is remarkable, for he bases it on the teleological direction of wonder. The argument in simplified form goes something like this. It is natural for man to wonder. Now, wonder consists in a desire to know the cause of something. And so if I apprehend some effect, and I know it has a cause, but the cause is hidden to me, then I will naturally wonder about the cause. But my wonder, as the argument goes, does not just take me to the cause if I am aware aware that there is a cause of this cause. Rather, wonder takes me much further. It is teleologically designed to take me all the way to the first cause. And not just to the knowledge of this cause as a cause, but even better to the knowledge of the essence of this cause. This means that the ultimate direction of wonder is nothing less than the vision of the divine essence. Is this not beautiful? Is it not beautiful to think that in some way, all I need to do to attain to God is to follow the natural movement of wonder? So let me give you this maxim. Quote, follow wonder, my child, for if you do, you will be taken all the way up to God. Thus, as I like to conceive it, wonder is our link to God. It is our road to wisdom. It is like the rainbow in that it connects earth to heaven and man to God. And when I say our road to wisdom, I do mean our. And this brings me to my next point. And it is that wonder is identified by the tradition as the motion, as the emotion most proper to the philosopher. I should actually be stronger. It is the emotion proper to man. Just as risibility is a necessary property of man, so is the capacity for wonder. Wonder indicates to some extent what makes man unique, what makes him different from all other beings. Thomas is actually pretty blunt about this. No one, he says, but man wonders. God does not wonder, 
For God is ignorant of nothing, and wonder involves ignorance, namely ignorance of causes. And animals do not wonder, since they are incapable of searching out the causes of things. And so I have never caught my stupid dog, Alice, in a moment of wonder. But I don't blame her, for I know that she simply can't help it. And so, as Pieper says, only the human spirit is capable of wonder. And it is only someone who does not yet know fully who wonders. This is so true for St. Thomas that he utilizes man's innate capacity for wonder in a rather astonishing argument to prove the full humanity of Christ. Some had argued that Christ did not have a rational soul. He was either a divine person united to a human body, which had no soul at all, or if he had a soul, he only possessed a sensitive soul, not a rational soul. Wanting to preserve the fullness of Christ's humanity, Thomas looked for evidence within Scripture, and one bit of evidence he found was Christ's encounter with the Roman centurion. As you know, Christ is said to have marveled at the faith of the Roman centurion. For Thomas, this indicates that Christ had to have been fully human. He had to have possessed a rational soul, for a divine person does not wonder, and a merely sensitive soul is incapable of wonder. Thus, Christ had to be fully human. This, to me, indicates another way that Christ is like us. Yes, he wept. Yes, he experienced fear. Yes, he felt pain and sorrow. And yes, he suffered and died. But he also took on wonder just as we undergo wonder. Augustine says that Christ did not have to wonder, but he nevertheless willed to wonder in order to show us how we should wonder and what we should wonder about. This means to me that Christ wants us to wonder. Wonder has to be something good. It has to be an authentic way of encountering reality. And as I said, it happens to be our way of encountering reality. It is our way into truth, into the nature of being. Once again, only the human spirit is capable of wonder. Now my fourth point is to get you to pause a moment to wonder about wonder. All right? I like to do this to my students. I, in fact, I derive an immense amount of pleasure from it. I like to ask, I like to ask the following question. Under what emotion do you think St. Thomas places wonder? And I'm a betting man, and if I were to bet, I would guess 99% of you would get this wrong. I usually give a list of about eight emotions, and no one that I can ever remember has ever guessed the right emotion on the first try. And I do understand why. For the one emotion that you would think Thomas would never place it under is indeed the very emotion under which he puts it. And this is precisely the emotion of fear. Thomas defines wonder as a kind of fear. On first appearances, this seems nuts. For wonder is a desire to know, but fear always indicates a flight, an aversion, not a desire. So if wonder is both a desire and a fear, then it would, would it not violate the principle of non-contradiction? Would it not be at the same time both a movement toward and a movement away? But for Thomas, there is no such contradiction involved. To understand why is very instructive toward our understanding of wonder. As I said earlier, wonder involves an ignorance of causes. But it is more than that. Wonder is ignorance, but it is not bare ignorance. It is rather a self-conscious ignorance. In other words, the wonderer is the one who is aware of his ignorance. He knows that he does not know. 
The one who does not wonder then is either the one who knows and knows that he knows, or is the one who does not know, but is not aware that he does not know. It's a lot of knows. Most Athenians in Socrates' experience were like the latter. This was their great blindness. They could not see their own ignorance. And Theotetus, perhaps Socrates' favorite interlocutor, embodied the opposite attitude. When questioned by Socrates, Theotetus is said to become, quote, giddy, for he is said to wonder like mad at the intellectual puzzles that Socrates presented to him. And as far as I know, there is no other case in all of Plato's writings where Socrates, without irony, calls someone a philosopher, but he does here. He calls Theotetus a philosopher for the specific reason that Theotetus has undergone wonder, which means he has undergone the experience of knowing that he does not know. Now, what does all this have to do with the fear present in wonder? Well, simply this. If wonder begins from an ignorance that has become aware of itself, then one of two things is possible. Either wonder leads immediately to a desire to escape from one's ignorance, which means that the wonder is moved to act, or wonder involves a momentary cessation of movement insofar as the wonderer hesitates to act lest he fall into a worse thing than his ignorance, which is nothing else than error. Now Thomas suggests that wonder, though it leads to desire, is more properly a hesitation a pause, a withholding, a suspension of judgment. Wonder is not itself a judgment. It leads to judgment, but it itself is a suspension of judgment. Why this is is explained by Thomas by his famous principle that everything that is not only naturally loves what is perfected of it, but also naturally abhors what is destructive of it. Or to use less violent imagery, everything naturally resists what is contrary to its good. And so the same is true for the human intellect. The intellect naturally loves truth, but in so doing, it also naturally abhors or resists error, which is the worst evil that can befall the intellect. Thus, the intellect naturally fears error. Its tendency when confronted with the possibility of error is to turn away, at least momentarily, from forming a judgment lest its judgment be false. And this, for Thomas, is exactly what happens in wonder. Wonder is a kind of fear because while wondering, the wonderer pauses to form any judgment precisely because of his fear of error. But if wonder were merely fear, it would be a strange and unfortunate thing to experience. For it would lead to no inquiry. It would be the death of philosophy. And thus wonder must of necessity result in a motion of desire, namely in the desire for knowledge. If it does not, then it is not wonder, but something else. Thomas actually has a word for this. It is stupor. But why is wonder more appropriately fear than desire? As Thomas sees it, the possibility of error is real. Error is a real danger, a real threat to man's intellectual life. And thus it is something to be feared. We have this false idea today, an idea which I think we got from Descartes, that error is not anything which we should really fear, either because it is really not that bad of a thing or because it is not hard to avoid. If you know Descartes, you know that Descartes even brags about his philosophy being easy. 
as being accessible to almost everyone. Descartes has no place for fear within his philosophy. There is simply nothing in his mind to fear since error for him is easily avoided and truth easily attained. And it is interesting to me that in dismissing fear, Descartes at the same time dismisses wonder. Wonder is not the beginning of philosophy for Descartes as it is for the tradition. And I think one of the reasons why is because he simply does not think there is any need for wonder given that the truth is easily attained. But this is not so for Thomas. Error for him is something that we should fear. Now there are many reasons for this, most of which have to do with the weakness of man's intellectual power. But suffice it to say that we are all, I believe, experientially aware of Thomas's main reason for thinking this. And it's simply because error is so darn hard to avoid. At least in my experience, this has been true. The pursuit of truth, at least in my world, has not been an easy matter. I know I have to go slowly and cautiously, which means I know I have to proceed with a certain amount of fear. And I also know that because the truth is hard, because it is a difficult good to achieve, then the desire that wonder produces in me cannot just be simple desire, but has to be a desire joined with hope. If a good is easy to attain, then simple desire is sufficient for its attainment. But if the good is difficult, meaning that obstacles need to be overcome in order to achieve it, then hope has to be added to desire if that object of one's desire is to be acquired. Philosophical truth is such a good. It is a bonum arduum. It is not easily accessible to the human mind. And thus the philosopher, if he is to journey correctly, has to be a man of both fear and hope. He has to see that his journey to truth, to wisdom, is one fraught with both difficulty and peril. And thus he needs, to, he needs fear to avoid the perils and hope to sustain his desire for knowledge, lest his desire wane because of the difficulties encountered. Now before I move on to the next emotion, I do want to speak briefly about those emotions or dispositions of the will which are specifically contrary to wonder and to the fear and hope found in wonder. Being contrary to wonder, these emotions are consequently incompatible with philosophy. They will not be found in the true philosopher. I like to call one of these dispositions the disposition of the yuppie. The yuppie, as I define him, is the one whose entire life is centered around the practical. His life is absorbed with tasks to be done, places to go, parties to attend, and people to know. He takes the world for granted. He is, it is there as something to be used and to be enjoyed. Such a man is never moved to philosophize precisely because he has never moved, or at least he is not very easily moved by wonder. He is numb to wonder, he is numb to mystery, he is numb to the remarkable beauty and intelligibility of things. And thus, he has never moved to contemplate, he has never moved simply to look at things. He has not a speculative bone in his body. He is like the Thracian slave who mocked Thales for falling into a well. Like the slave girl, the yuppie finds the philosopher to be a profound oddity. He simply makes no sense, and thus he is someone simply to mock. The second disposition or emotion is the emotion of despair. The one who despairs is the one who yields, is the one who gives up. For Thomas, despair destroys philosophy by destroying wonder, and it destroys wonder 
by destroying the desire and hope found in wonder. You might say that the one who despairs has fear, but his fear is immoderate because it is not balanced off by a true hope for attaining the truth. Thus he gives up inquiring because he finds the task simply too hard. The third disposition or emotion is the opposite extreme to despair. If if despair consists in suffering from too much fear, then presumption is suffering from too little fear. Like despair, presumption contradicts the hope found in wonder. The guy who presumes is not the guy who hopes, because the guy who hopes views the good as something still to be achieved and as something difficult to achieve, while the guy who presumes either thinks he already has the good, or if he has not the good, then he still regards it as something that he will most certainly attain. Now, of the two, I want you to guess which one Thomas considers to be the greater threat to the search for truth and thus to the life of the philosopher. So take a moment and ask yourself that question. Which is a greater threat to the search for truth? Is it despair or is it presumption? All right, who said despair over here? I thought I heard someone say despair. Well, I'm going to say when I first looked into the question, I thought for sure it would be despair, for despair just seems to be worse than to presumption. It would seem a worse thing to do. It would seem a worse thing to despair of the truth than to presume that one has the truth. But like many other things, Thomas surprises us and says the exact opposite of what we would expect. Indeed, Thomas goes so far as to describe presumption as quote the mother of all error. All error, in some way, arises out of presumption or pride. Thus, presumption is a greater danger for the philosopher than is despair. Now the reason Thomas gives for this is that for him it is a worse state for the intellect to be in error than to be in ignorance. It is more difficult to find the truth if one is in error than in ignorance. Now this is precisely the difference between the guy who despairs and the guy who presumes. The guy who despairs has formed no judgment and so he is formally not in error. He does not take something as true that is not. He has simply given up on his pursuit of truth. Through his despair, he remains in ignorance. But the guy who presumes rushes into his judgment, fearing no error. But often his judgment is erroneous, or at least is without due reason, and thus he holds something to be the case that is not the case. And this is the essence of error, namely to say that something is that is not, or to say that something is not that is. And so you might say the guy who presumes suffer from, suffers from a greater blindness than the guy who despairs. His journey back to the truth is much longer and more difficult than the journey of one who despairs. So at this point, I have laid out at least three or four emotions necessary to the philosopher. He needs first and foremost to be disposed to wonder. But he also needs to be filled with desire, namely the desire to know. But his desire to know needs to be balanced by hope, lest he fall into despair, and by fear, lest he fall into presumption. Now all of these emotions, as I have said, are necessary to the philosophical life. Yet they are not sufficient. To attain wisdom, it is not enough, in other words, for the philosopher to experience wonder and desire and hope and fear. He needs other emotions as well. 
There are at least three others that he needs. Now, I've already spoken, I think, a little too long, so I will keep my remarks about these three to a minimum. The first of these other emotions is love. The philosopher by definition is a lover of wisdom. Now, note that he's not said to be wise, but is said only to be a lover of wisdom. And so you might say the essence of philosophy, what makes philosophy be philosophy, is love. And if this is true, then without love, you will not be wise. Love is consequently necessary to the pursuit of wisdom. But what is this love that characterizes the philosopher? What does it mean to love wisdom? The first thing in my mind to emphasize is that the love that defines the philosopher is not a love that is in him by nature. We do indeed enjoy a natural love for knowledge, but this love is different from the love of the philosopher. The philosopher's love is more a chosen love than a natural love. It is from choice that one becomes a philosopher. Yes, wonder is the origin of philosophy, and yes, it is natural for man to wonder, but wonder by itself is insufficient to to take a man to wisdom. For everyone to some extent wonders, but not everyone is a philosopher. Indeed, very few are. The difference, as I am suggesting, has to do with love. It is the man who chooses to orient his loves, and thus his entire life, to wisdom, who is the philosopher. Other men might wonder, but they are not philosophers if they choose something else other than wisdom as the primary object of their love. It is only the lover who is able to bring his wonder to its natural perfection. And so two things must be and so two things must be true about a man if he is to be called a philosopher, namely a lover of wisdom. First, he must love wisdom for its own sake. If he loves wisdom, say, for the power or reputation it gives him, then he's not really a lover of wisdom. He is rather a lover of power or reputation. The philosopher then loves wisdom as an end sought for itself, not as an end conducive to another end. Secondly, he must love wisdom more than anything else in his life. If he loves wisdom, but also loves money, and loves money more than he loves wisdom, then he really isn't a lover of wisdom, but is more a lover of money. So wisdom, in my mind, is a little bit like a woman who dumps her man because she no longer wants to be second fiddle in his life. A man who, say, loves his work more than he loves his wife, even if it is true that he loves his wife, is still more a lover of his work than of his wife. In such a case, she has taken second place in his life. And wisdom is like such a woman. For like her, it needs to be given first place within the philosopher's life, otherwise it has no place at all within his life. Aristotle himself is a great example of one who loves wisdom in the way that wisdom should be love. You may know this story or this comment he makes in the Ethics But when thinking of criticizing Plato, his teacher and friend, he hesitates to do so out of love for his friend. And yet Aristotle nevertheless does the deed because of a greater love he has. He says the following, quote, It seems indeed better, and in fact especially obligatory on philosophers, to sacrifice even the rights of friendship for the sake of truth. While it is commendable to have love for both, we ought to honor truth as sacred above friends. Now, how many of us, I ask, could say the same? 
How many of us really honor truth as sacred, as more sacred than anything else or anyone else that we love? But wisdom or truth really does call us to such love, a love that puts it above all else, such that we become willing to sacrifice, if if necessary, everything else for its sake. Now let me speak about the emotions contrary to the love of wisdom, emotions that we would not find in the philosopher. I think there are several, but I will specify just two. One, of course, is hatred. Here I'm not talking about just any hatred, but I am specifically talking about the hatred of truth. If I hate truth, then I will care less about wisdom. But of course the question is, why would someone hate truth? Thomas gives a gives as the chief cause the fact that the truth makes a claim on us and will often contradict and thus forbid what I want and love. I didn't get to make the truth, and sometimes we resent this. Sometimes we wish the truth were otherwise, and when it is not, we either wish we did not know it, or wish it would leave us to ourselves, or we even come to detest it and perhaps even rebel against it. But such contempt is, of course, not in the heart of the philosopher. The other disposition destructive of the philosopher's love is simply a contrary love. I've already noted that if I love something more than I love wisdom, then the love of wisdom is really not in me. But I wish to note here that Thomas singles out one kind of love as more opposed to the love of the philosopher than any other kind of love. This is the love of carnal pleasures. I mean, of course, the inordinate love of cardinal pleasures. He says this, I think, because of the evident connection he sees between love and joy. I tend to love what I find joy in. But of all moral types, the one who more than any other seems to find no joy in spiritual things is the man who is addicted to carnal pleasure. Such a man only has a taste for bodily pleasures. Spiritual pleasures are simply distasteful to him. And thus, more than anyone else, his mind and heart are turned off, are deadened to things of the Spirit. So let me say at this point, we have now added love to our list of emotions. In combination with the other emotions, love would probably be sufficient to bring us to, to, bring us to wisdom if it were the case that we could achieve wisdom by ourselves. But this is not the case. Man is by nature a social being, and the reason for this above all else is that man is not sufficient of himself to acquire the truth. One man by himself can certainly acquire some truth, but by himself he simply cannot get very far. Man sees very little all by himself. The pursuit of truth requires a collective effort. As Isaac Newton famously said, quote, If I have seen Father, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. What this means, then, is that the philosopher is in need of another emotion, namely an emotion by which he is able to learn from others. This is, of course, the disposition or emotion of docility. I do love the way that, that Dwayne Berquist, who teaches, I believe, up at Assumption College in Massachusetts, defines the docility. I quote, Docility is that by which a man is disposed to learn. Sorry, let me read that again. Docility is that by which a man is disposed to hear 
or read carefully, frequently and with reverence, the words of those wiser than himself. Now, to me, this implies that learning from others is not automatic. Having one's ears unclogged is not enough to learn well. To be docile means more than a passive consumption of information. This is one reason why learning through the internet can be so dangerous. Although passivity is involved in docility, since learning involves first and foremost a hearing of the words of someone else, I do believe that docility is more an activity than a passivity. It requires us to listen, which is something more than just the bare taking in of sounds. It also requires us to read, and it requires us to listen and to read the words of others frequently. This means I must put this means I must set aside time and set aside much time to listening and reading. It also requires that we seek out those wiser than us. This is actually an essential element to docility, for it means we should not seek to learn from just anyone. In fact, to seek to know from just anyone is indeed contrary to docility. To try to learn from the demons, for example, or to try to learn from an atheist or a skeptic is to learn poorly. It is certainly contrary to the way a philosopher attempts to learn. For the philosopher seeks out the right teachers, namely those teachers who are wiser than himself. Now I want to say the same needs to be true about us. If we wish to be wise, we need good teachers. We need to find the right masters and then with reverence dispose ourselves to learn from them. Now if you want a good example of indocility, look at Descartes. Descartes, in my mind, probably is the most indocile thinker ever to live. He even brags about it. As he claims in many of his books, he does not need to look anywhere but at his own reason, simply because, frankly, everyone else has basically gotten philosophy all wrong. Thus, he only needs to turn to himself to discover the truth about everything his reason can know. There simply is no one wiser than himself. And a great example of docility is, I think, St. Thomas himself. In fact, I think the famous nickname given to him, namely the dumb ox, is not really derogatory at all, except for maybe the word ox. For I think, it, for I think his dumbness actually points to his docility, his willingness to stay quiet for so long so as to hear and to learn from the words of his teachers. Now, as I see it, there are two main dispositions which contradict the docility of the philosopher. One I have found here at Christendom is the, it is laziness. Sorry. Laziness can make us indocile. And I include within my description of laziness the frequent wasting of time. How much is my failure to learn from those wiser than myself due simply to the sheer amount of time that I have wasted in my life or to the fact that I am often just downright lazy? In our laziness, we fail to become wise because we fail to make the effort to learn frequently from those wiser than ourselves. The other disposition that often makes us indocile leads me to the final emotion that I regard as necessary to the philosopher. As I said earlier, presumption or pride is the mother of all error. I gave one reason for why this is, but we can now give another. And this is that from our pride, we can refuse to learn from others. We trust our opinion more than the opinion of any others, 
And thus we do not regard those who are truly wiser than ourselves with any reverence. Thomas says this about the, pride man, about the proud man's indocility. Quote, The proud neither subjects his understanding to God, nor does he condescend to learn from men. So as I said, this brings me to the last of the emotions needed for the life of philosophy, and this is humility. Humility is that disposition which prevents us from being proud and thus from refusing to learn from others, especially from God. I do love the way Thomas captures the attitude of the proud and the presumptuous, an attitude which I think is widely prevalent in the modern mind, which has so little regard for the marvelous and the miraculous. He says the following, There are some, he says, who have such a presumptuous opinion of their own ability that they deem themselves able to measure the nature of everything. I mean to say that in their estimation, everything is true that seems to them so, and everything is false that does not. And so humility restrains this undue and false opinion we may have of ourselves. And so now we have completed our list. So let me repeat. To become successful at wisdom, these things must be true about you as a person. Namely, you must be open, you must be open to, and be moved by the marvelous nature of being. You must hate error and thus fear it. You must hope, in spite of your fear, that truth is attainable, that it is a good that can be possessed. You must resist both despair and presumption. You must fall in love with wisdom, which means you must put it first in your life. And you must find good teachers and be willing to open your minds and hearts to their words. And you may have humility, and you must have humility, so that you do not fall into the stupidity, the stupidity of the proud. If all these things are true about you, then you have the character that it takes to be wise. Now, everything I have said so far pertains only to philosophical wisdom. But as I said earlier, there are two other wisdoms that I need to say something about. Otherwise, I do feel I would be a pretty lousy Christendom teacher if I let you walk away tonight with the impression that the best wisdom or the height of wisdom is found through philosophy. As you well know, Christianity has made possible a new wisdom, a wisdom that is better than the wisdom of the philosophers. And so I need to say something about this wisdom, a wisdom that is referred to in the Catholic tradition as one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not a theologian, so I do hesitate to speak about something I'm not really competent to speak about, but I simply cannot restrain myself. This is because when I began to think about this topic during the summer, I was taken back all the way to my first semester at Christendom in 1983 and remembering something that I heard for the first time in Mr. O'Haren's theology class, namely the teaching that theology builds on and perfects philosophy. I still don't appreciate the full beauty and significance of this teaching, but what thrilled me this summer was that I came to see that this teaching is unequivocally applicable to my interest in wisdom and how wisdom is to be achieved. So take wisdom itself. I think it is easy to dwell on the differences between philosophical wisdom and theological wisdom, and as a result, to downplay the worth of philosophical wisdom. And yet, what I think I've come to see is that theological wisdom is in no way supplants or destroys philosophical 
wisdom. For the end of philosophical wisdom is, in at least one sense, the beginning of theological wisdom. The end of the philosopher is to come to a knowledge of God as this is possible to human reason. The philosopher's wisdom consists accordingly in knowing that there is a God and knowing such things as that he is the first and final cause of all things, that he is one and infinite and eternal and provident. Now these truths are, of course, called the preambles to faith. They can be known independent of revelation, but the more important point for me is that these truths are in no way put aside by theology. In Christian wisdom, just as for philosophical wisdom, God exists. He is the beginning and end of all things. He is one, infinite, eternal, and provident. And yet Christian Christian wisdom does more than just keep and reaffirm the truths of philosophy. No, it brings philosophy to perfection. That is, it perfects what has begun in philosophy. Wonder, as we saw before, is oriented to the knowledge of God according to what God is in his essence. Philosophy can undoubtedly attain a true knowledge of God, but his knowledge is imperfect. For philosophy gets us only to God as cause. It does not get us to God as subject, as what he is in his essence. And so the wonder of the philosopher must remain even when he achieves his wisdom. There is more for the There is more for the philosopher to see, and yet he cannot see it. He has not the power to obtain the very thing that he yearns to know. And so enters the gift of Christian wisdom, a gift that is able to perfect the philosopher's desire for knowledge. For Christian Christian wisdom is not a wisdom about God as cause, but is a wisdom about God as subject, as God is in his own essence. And so figuring this out, I began to suspect that the same things might be true about the emotions necessary for obtaining wisdom. And to my delight, I think I have discovered that my suspicion is right. Just as the philosopher needs all the emotions I listed before, I think I am right in asserting that the Christian soul needs comparable emotions, comparable dispositions in order to perfect his wisdom as a Christian. And as with Christian wisdom perfecting philosophical wisdom, so too do I think that the dispositions of the Christian soul perfect the dispositions of the philosopher. So the love of the philosopher is perfected through Christian love, the hope of the philosopher is perfected through Christian hope, and so on. Now I have not the time to take every emotion and see how each one is transformed in the Christian life, but I will at least speak about the one that I find most intriguing. And this is how Christian fear is related to the fear present in philosophical wonder. As we said, wonder and thus fear are for the philosopher the origins of his wisdom. And guess what? The same thing is true for the Christian soul. For how does wisdom supposedly begin to operate and to bear fruit within the Christian soul? It is nothing else than through fear. The fear of the Lord, as the famous passage from the Book of Wisdom states, is the beginning of wisdom. This means for the Christian, as well as the philosopher, it is good and right to fear, as long as one fears what should be feared. But note how Christian fear transforms and perfects the fear of the philosopher. The fear of the philosopher is chiefly a fear about an error of the mind. It is a fear that I will not achieve my perfection as a knower. But Christian fear transforms this fear 
and directs it at what should be its proper object. For the Christian, Christ is wisdom. And thus, and thus for the Christian so to be wise entails knowing and being united to the wisdom that Christ is. No longer then is wisdom simple no longer then is wisdom something that simply consists in the perfection of my reason, but is something much better. For now it is understood to be a person, and a person who wishes to communicate his own life and his own wisdom to me. Because of this, then fear as the beginning of wisdom is radically transformed. It is still a fear of error, but no longer is it just a fear of speculative or rational error, but is fear primarily of a moral or existential kind. For it is a fear about my relationship and friendship toward a person who so happens to be wisdom itself. Thus what I should fear above all else is not so much that I felt to be wise as much that I should offend wisdom itself. That is, that I should offend the person of Christ. Such a fear is truly conducive to wisdom. For through such fear, the soul seeks to unite itself so perfectly to wisdom that it desires to regulate its every thought, word, and action according to the very rule of Christ, which is nothing else than the rule of charity. In so doing, the soul perfects that very wisdom which the, which the Holy Spirit imparted to it through the communication of his grace. And now I will conclude by saying again that I will fail you if I let you walk away tonight thinking that the gift of wisdom is the best wisdom or is the height of wisdom. It is clearly superior to philosophical wisdom, but is nevertheless not the highest form of wisdom. This is because through the gift of wisdom, as it exists in this life, I still do not attain to the most perfect knowledge of God's essence. In this life, I still see God through a glass darkly. I don't see his essence itself. And thus there is a higher wisdom that awaits me, and this is, of course, the wisdom described as the wisdom of the beatified, the wisdom of the saints. The saints are said to be perfectly wise precisely because they both see God's essence directly and their wills are united in an absolutely perfect way to God himself. And just as theological wisdom is perfective of philosophical wisdom, so too does the wisdom of the beatified bring to complete perfection the desire for wisdom present in the wonder of the philosopher and in the fear of the Christian soul. And what I will say as my final parting word is that what is almost incredible to me is that the very dispositions that make the philosopher be a philosopher and the Christian soul a Christian soul are not all of them eradicated in heaven. Yes, there is no longer need for hope or docility. And yes, of course, as we all know, charity or love will remain in heaven. But guess what? To my utter astonishment, I found texts in St. Thomas where he suggests that in addition to love, fear and wonder will remain in heaven, in the soul of the beatified. As he says, we will stand before God's throne in fear and wonder. They will, of course, not have the same character as they do in this life. Fear will not involve any fear of loss, and wonder will not involve any kind of ignorance. But they will nevertheless be present. They will be like the emotions that one experiences before something that is truly awesome and truly incomprehensible. They will be like the experience of all, for God is truly awesome, truly something that cannot be comprehended by us, even given all eternity. And thus from our all, 
from our fear and wonder at Him, we will kneel before Him with true humility for all eternity. And so fear and wonder will forever remain linked to wisdom. Thank you.